This right. is an eight iron, and it's a dead shank. Wow. Way right. Oh, takes a hop off the path. You gotta be kidding me. Very tough pitch shot right here. You gotta hit it into the hill. One hop up and bite, and it's in. Kind of like that. Well, I would like to welcome noted swing instructor and PGA Master Professional Martin Hall to the Sub-70 Podcast. Martin, I thank you very much for being with us today. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Well, my pleasure, Jake. I hope I have something sensible to say. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a big week, so there's a, there's a lot of golf to talk about. So the uh, major season is uh, in play. Um, you've been around you know, some of the best players in the world for many years. I know you know these guys. What are the best players doing this week to get their game ready for Augusta National? And is, does that golf course uh, dictate maybe what a, a teacher and a top-level professional might be working on for them to kind of peak for this week? Well, I think for the most part, it was interesting. I had a, I had a conversation with Rory McIlroy just last week, as a matter of fact, and I said, how are you going to prepare? And he said he would try to treat it like any other tournament. And I, I just happened to watch Justin Thomas on an interview. And he said the same, he's going to try and treat it like any other tournament. And, of course, that's, that's all well and good until Sunday afternoon at the Masters, last back, you know, back nine. But I, I, think, I think as much as they can, they, they don't build it up to be any bigger than the tournament was last week or the week before or... Or, or Bay Hill, or the Honda, or anything else they play in. Because um, I think when you build something up to be so big, uh, you just add more pressure. And, and, you know, I think some other thing, that's perhaps what happened to Rory last year. He so, so wants to win this one to complete the Grand Slam. And I think he's, he's, he appears to have changed his mindset a little bit this year to to freewheel it a bit and not be quite so careful, uh, could it a bit more like a normal tournament. So I think that's the first part of my answer, that as much as you can in a major championship, they're going to try and prepare for it like any other week. Um, I think, I remember I remember noted sports psychologist Dick Coop said to me, you can't cram for qualifying school, you can't cram for a major championship. So if somebody's working fast and furious on Tuesday afternoon on the golf swing and it's the Masters week, it's probably a problem. I think, you know, you, you've, you've usually you've got your A game when you get there or you haven't. And if you haven't quite got your A game, I mean, you, you look a bit, but you, you're not going to lift up the hood and redo the engine on Tuesday or Wednesday. You, you're going to use all your, your psychology skills, all your experience and try and get your way around it. I mean, We've heard Tiger say many times. I've heard Jack Nicklaus say many times that you, you don't have to have your A++ game to always win if if you are that good. So to answer your question, I think the best ones are trying to treat it like any other week, and they're trying to get plenty of rest because it looks like it could be a really long week with the weather and good nutrition and um, save their energy because, uh, as you probably know, if you've been to Augusta, it's one heck of a walk around there. Those slopes are so much more significant when you see them than you would ever realize on TV. And if it's wet and if it's windy, it is physically an extremely demanding golf course just to walk in. So I think that's what the best ones are doing this week, just getting ready. As an instructor, would you, if you had 
a player in this tournament, would, beforehand a couple of weeks, would you have also been doing stuff, and maybe even subtly, about, hey, let's work on the draw a little bit more because some of those holes, holes there have you know a right-to-left bias or working on subtly hitting uh you know, long irons, even a utility wood or something like that, a little higher for those par fives. Would there be subtle things in that golfer's game you would also be trying to adjust for or maybe try to uh, uh, assimilate into what that golf course needs to play it really, really well? Yeah, I think you would. I think you would probably come from the player rather than the teacher to begin with. I mean, the the players who have a good chance to win the Masters, I mean, you know, many, many of the people in the field could win. But but some are more likely to win than others. But but the ones who played there before, they they know what to expect. They know that there's it's a right to left bias, and and you know the back nine, the tenth is right to left, the thirteenth is right to left, the fourteenth is right to left, the seventeenth is right to left, and then you stand on the eighteenth and you've got to hit it left to right. Naughty naughty Bobby Jones. Uh, made, made it very difficult with that last tee shot indeed, I'm sure by design. Um, so, I mean, they, they know what they've got to work on. They've, they've been thinking about it for weeks, the, the, the courses they play at. Um, I know down at the Bears Club where so many of them play, they've had the greens running at nearly 14 this last week. So the players preparing down there have been putting on fast greens. Um they, they get ready these days. I mean, they're, they're well-tooled. They're ready to go. They know what to expect. And it's controlling their emotions. And I saw Faldo on TV this morning talking about Rory. And he said, you know, for him, it would be controlling his energy, which, you know, a lot of golfers, an 18-handicapper might think, well, what, what difference does that make? At the highest level, it makes a massive difference. It isn't, it isn't a grip or a swing thought at the highest level. It's controlling your emotions, it's controlling your energy, it's dealing with the ups and downs of what Augusta can bring because it is frighteningly difficult. Um, I think many would tell you it's the most frightening golf course they play during the year because if you, if you miss your landing spot by a yard or two, the ball can finish 30 yards away from the flag. It's, it's pretty much unlike any other golf course they play during the year other than maybe the U.S. Open, of course, can get pretty frightening as well. But uh, those would be the two that uh, they make even the strongest men have weak knees at times. I know you've gotten to spend some quality time with uh, the best of all time who has six green jackets, uh, Mr. Nicholas. Have you ever had any conversations with him on why and how he played Augusta so well for such an extended period of time? You know, I, I haven't asked Jack that. Um, I worked for Jack for seven years and saw him, you know, fairly often. And, um, you know, we, we opened our golf course at Ibis about uh, 14 months ago together on the first tee, which was tremendous. Hadn't seen him for a while. Um, I, I think what Jack would say, though, is that in all of the majors he won, in the 18 majors he won and the, the ump team that he finished second or third, uh, which, which makes him all the more remarkable, um, here's a fact most people would not know. This is I'm going off track here just a little bit, but but Jack Nicklaus, between 1962 and 1981, finished outside of the top three in the Open Championship once. That's crazy. Isn't that incredible? Yeah, it's just you think the 20 odds. Twenty years yeah. he finished outside the top three once. 
So, so if you ask him about his dominance, whether it be in the Masters or any other events like that, he would say he felt on the back nine he was probably more patient than, 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 than anybody else. Um, he was very much a man who would take a club to get it in the fairway. Of course, he was a big hitter, but he didn't have to take driver. But a lot of times he wouldn't take driver. Um, and I think he was a great, great putter. You know, people think about, you know, the Golden Bear being such an amazing ball striker, which, of course, he was. But, um, I mean, other than perhaps Tiger Woods, no one has ever putted the ball as well as Jack Nicklaus did in majors. And, and you know, whether it's when he won in 1975 at Augusta and hold that one right across the 16th green, or when he won in 1986 and he hold that incredible putt for Eagle on 15. I mean... Nobody's hold probably more good putts to win majors when it matters than, than Jack, other than perhaps Tiger, because Jack would Jack would tell you, um, Jack would tell you Tiger's the greatest putter ever. I, I think some of us would say no, Tiger's a great putter, but Jack was the greatest. But I think he would just say, you know, patient. Um, you know, one of the things Jack always instilled in me, and then he says in his book, he says in his writings, um, says in his clinics that. Really, really, what determines how good a player can be is when the difference between your best shots and your worst shots is relatively narrow. Lots of people at lots of levels, be it a club championship or a pro-am or, you know, perhaps a league from work, they can hit some incredibly good shots. But then their bad shots are catastrophic. If the gap between your best shots and your worst shots is fairly narrow, and you've got a good temperament, you are probably going to be there somewhere on Sunday afternoon. And I think that that's how Jack played. Yeah, and it worked for him for obviously a very long period of time. Yeah. Well, he was 58 years old and finished like third. I mean, it's, I mean, the track record there speaks for itself. Absolutely incredible. Next question I have. Everyone who's a golf fan who knows who you are kind of thinks of you as, a, as an instructor and a teacher, but you did play on the European tour uh, professionally in the 1970s. My question is, what are maybe two or three things or even one or two things that you learned while playing out there at that really high level that helped you become a better teacher? Well, I think the most important thing I learned, Jace, was I realized I had no idea what I was doing compared to the people I was playing with. And uh, my my quest to become a good teacher was was actually driven by missing a four-foot putt on the 72nd hole of qualifying school late in the 1970s. And I lost my card by one shot. A smelly little left-to-right four-footer that missed weak and on the low side. Grandma would have done better, no doubt. But what it drove me to try and work out was what was it that the the people I played junior golf with, Sandy Lyle, he won the Masters. Ian Woosnam, he won the Masters. And, and I wouldn't say that I was in the same class as them, but I wasn't all that far behind them. And so my quest was to try and understand what did they learn that I didn't? What did they find that I didn't? And, and did I take a wrong turn? And then did they make a good turn? They, they got on the super highway to wonderful golf, and I drove in a ditch. Um, and, and it took that, that's been my life's work to figure out what I did to help a lot of other people hopefully play golf a lot better and enjoy the game a lot more. And, uh, you know, I've, I've had a wonderful career with it. I would never have thought that that four footer to lose my card 
would be such a such a positive thing in my life in time. It wasn't positive at the time, though. I have to tell you, it was not positive at the time. I think there's also, and I've mentioned this in the podcast before, that there's this reverence for the European tour in the 70s and 80s. I mean, you guys had some characters out there between, you know, personalities, Seve, Sam Torrance, I think in Bernhard Gallagher, Brian Barnes. Is there any other, you know, is there is the Simon, was Simon Hobday potentially out there then when you were playing? Like, is, Oh, Simon might have been at the top of the hill. Right. Is there some great stories or one or two that you can share? And was it literally like a traveling circus back in the heyday in the 70s and 80s on the European tour? I don't don't think it was a traveling circus. I mean, there was was great fun. I mean, Ian Woosnam is uh, somebody I've known a long time, a great great character, a great player, a great character. Uh, Sam Torrance obviously was a great character. Um, Brian Barnes was a great character. No, no, no doubt. I think, you know, look, back back then, people hadn't discovered the gym in the way they have now. They didn't understand fitness the way we do now. And so, you know, a few more pints and a few cigarettes at the end of every day were sort of standard and a few a few good tails around the bar and a bit of laughter. It was it was the way back then. I'm sure it isn't now. Yes. But right. there, were, there, were, there were some great characters. I, I think there is still a great there appears to be still a great camaraderie on the European tour and maybe that's because they travel from country to country and perhaps travel you know more, more often on the same flights and stay more often perhaps at the same hotels and uh, I think there's just there's just something in the you know the English the Scottish the Welsh the Spanish the Portuguese I mean there, there is a mischievous sense of uh, of humor it, it's a lot of pranksters on the european tour to this day and um i think that's just that's just a culture thing there they love they love to laugh at themselves i i got an incredible kick out of some of the social media after, after the Ryder cup you know the the mollywood thing with uh with molinari and yeah, Tommy yes well it, it was amazing and um i think it's just just a little different culture i think I, th- I think the Europeans take their golf seriously, but they don't take themselves too seriously, and that's just sort of a, you know, it's an English way. Um, it's not. I don't. I don't think it's better or worse. It's just just how it is over there, and you know, they 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 have a lot of people have a self-deprecating sense of humor, like Ferrety. I mean, David Ferrety's one like that. He's a he's very much an American now, but of course he grew up in that ilk with Sam Torrance and, and that crowd and. Uh, I don't know anybody who's any funny or makes more fun of themselves than David Ferrety. Well, I think if I could go back in time and play, you know, a practice round of golf with with Sam Torrance, Brian Barnes, and, and throw any of those other characters in, I don't think there could be a group that would be more fun to play with. Who also played great golf. I mean, these guys, you know, I kind of look at them as these wonderful characters from that era, but they could really play too, right? I mean, oh, they. they- they, they 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 could all play, Jace. They 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 were all extremely good, uh, extremely good players. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean they 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 could all hit it. And uh, you know my 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 first European tour event was uh, my first European tour event was the same event as Bernard Langer's first European tour event. And there I was hitting balls next to, well I was actually hitting balls, and behind me I certainly heard bang, bang, bang. What was that? And I turned round, and there's some chap with jet black hair and a red slavenger sweater and bronze olive skin hitting balls like I'd never seen before. And I said, "Who's that chap?" 
oh, he's called Ballesteros. We think he might be fairly good. And, uh, I mean, I, I, I knew right then, I mean, he could hit a golf ball like I, I had never seen before. I'd never seen it before. And uh, he would only be, what would he be then, 18 maybe? Nine, yeah. 19, just, Some, just somewhere before he there. finished. Yeah. It's just before he finished uh, third in the Open Championship at Royal Birkdale. But, you know, so, I've, I mean, it's interesting for me. I mean, I, I've, seen, I've seen great shots hit. I've seen shots hit by players of every standard. I mean... I love to talk about playing golf. I love to talk about the game. I love to talk about teaching golf as well because that's that has become my great passion, helping people play better golf. And hopefully I, I enjoy speaking to PJ sections, helping teachers be better teachers. And, you know, the, 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 the gifts that have been bestowed on me by all these major champions I've been around, um, you know, it's nice to pass those on and make sure some of those pearls of wisdom from the ages don't get lost in the cracks. Well, this this segments perfectly into my next question because speaking on the uh, the European side of stuff, you got to work with John Jacobs, who is you know one of the best teachers. Um, if you kind of read the, the guys who really know, seem to there's a lineage that goes back to him. How did you meet yeah. him, and and what made John Jacobs such an influential influential teacher? And you can see how that tree has you know, started from him, how many of the greats at some point in time spent time with him? Yeah, I, I, I think probably anybody who's been at the top, anybody who's risen to the top in teaching has been heavily influenced by John Jacobs. Um, but Butch Harmon has said openly, other other than his father, John Jacobs was a big influence on him. Hank Haney has said he's the greatest teacher ever. Uh, Jim Hardy just thinks Jacobs was the smartest man ever to to watch golf balls being hit and, and, and diagnose the ball flight. Um, and I think many of us think Jacobs was beyond brilliant. I mean, in this day and age, we have TrackMan, we have Foresight, we have flight scopes, we have launch monitors. I, mean, I can tell you 40 years ago, John Jacobs was the first walking, talking launch monitor. He, he, was, as quick as a, he was as quick as a launch monitor back then, and, and he would always teach from impact. But what made him so special was, one, he was a very good player. People may or may not know this, but he was, he was a two-time Ryder Cup player. He was a two-time Ryder Cup captain. Um, he started the European Tour in his present form, which people wouldn't know. I mean, uh, incredibly, incredibly gifted man with, with many great skills indeed. But I think the, the, there's a wonderful little book about John Jacobs, um, and it's not about his teaching. It was written by Laddie Lucas. It's about John Jacobs, the man. And he interviewed John quite deeply for this. And John said he taught the way he did because when he was at school as a young man, he would find that most of his teachers at school talked too quickly and covered too much ground and, and, and you know left the student confused. And he decided when he started teaching golf that he would talk slowly. He would be direct. And his students would not be confused. And that's a great role model for Anybody who's teaching, make your point and then stop talking. Uh, you, don't, you don't have to oversell it. You don't have to over-labor it. Uh, his delivery was the likes of which I've never seen. I still, I, I have lots of videotapes of John teaching and speeches that he did. And I still, to this day, just listen. I love listening to how he talked about golf. Not only what he talked about it, but how he talked about it the tone in his voice, the pace in his voice, the, the emphasis points that he made. And he, he commanded attention. I think John would have been 
if he'd been in the army, he would have been a brigadier or a general. Um, if he'd been a politician, he would have been a prime minister. Or he would have been a president. If he'd been in business, he would have been a CEO. He was, he was just going to be massively successful, whatever he did. He just happened to be golf teaching, which he was brilliant at. Was one of his gifts to, could he, could he make it very simple? Could he take something that was relatively complex and yet make the student grasp what he was trying to have them do very easily? Is that, was that a gift he had that he could kind of cut through the minutiae per se? You know, I think he kept it very simple. And, and I think in, in this day and age where we have all these measuring devices that can tell you pretty much what you had for breakfast before you hit the golf ball, um, I think I think people would do people who teach for a living or people who want to play better golf would do well to Google John Jacobs or YouTube John Jacobs and listen to his views on the golf swing because he kept it simple but that didn't mean it was inadequate by any means far, far from it I mean it was it was it was very complete I mean he had a, he had Jack Nicklaus's attention when he talked he had Tom Watson's attention when he talked he had Sebi's attention he always had my attention he always did whenever I was around him. Um, and he, he just he just had a wonderful he had a wonderful mind he he got a lot of his thoughts I mean Ken Bowden who was his author was a great friend of mine he was also Jack's author Ken Bowden was a great friend of mine and Ken said that John Jacobs got most of his thoughts by reading uh, Bobby Jones books early on so John was actually heavily influenced by the thoughts of Bobby Jones and you you can see that if you read the Bobby Jones books that it was all about the, you know, the, the, the collision, the, the impact of the club on the ball and the resultant ball flight. And, and you know, that's what John did. John, the, the one thing that I will say almost every day um, when I'm teaching golf is, and this is classic John Jacobs, John would say to me, Martin, never forget, golf is what the ball does. Golf is ball control. I, I still agree with that to this very day. That's why golf swings can look different, but still produce incredible results. You know, you can you can have people like Ryan Moore with unusual or swing, or Jim Fury with a you know seemingly a bit of loop in the swing. You can have Bubba Watson. Uh, you know, in the day we've had many. We've had Lee Trevino. Um, lots of di- lots of different ways to do it. But as long as you've got a repetitive uh, functional ball flight, you're a golfer. And that that was John's big thing. What a golf swing looks like is somewhat overrated. What a golf swing does to the golf ball on a consistent basis should never be underrated. Well, and you can look at you know, some of those players. I always think of like Eamon Darcy, too, of a really kind of unorthodox golf swing, right? But at the moment of impact, all of those players you just talked about, it's pretty much perfect. Well, they, they had – I don't think any of them would hit it straight, um, the the idea that people hit the ball straight, John, John would always say nobody hits it straight, meaning zero side spin, you know, start line zero, side spin zero, deviation zero. Nobody hits it straight. Everybody has a bias for slight draw or slight fade, um, but they, but they can all make it repeat. It's very functional. The best players always have the ball curving towards the target. The worst players always have the ball curving away from the target, and. You know, you can play good golf with a big draw or a big fade as long as it doesn't start at the target and then curve. You know, people who fade the ball, you better if you're a right-handed golf and you fade it, you better start it left of your target. And if you draw the ball and you're a right-handed golfer, you better start it right of the target unless you want to have high numbers. Yeah, absolutely. I, I guess what I'm saying is, you know, 
gyms take Furyk's golf swing to the eye or whatever, it looks different or whatever. But as he gets that club stays so square for, for his golf swing for so long that actually through the impact zone, and I'm assuming you would agree with this, it's really good. And that's why he's been really good for 25 years. I think he has a very large bank balance that would support that last yes. statement. <laughs> yes, right. And look what he's doing very, this year. Yeah, right. I mean, yeah. you can say what you want about that golf swing, but, man, it's like you said, he's been really good for a really long period of time. Yeah, I mean, I, I think anybody who would say, anybody who would be silly enough to say, I don't like Jim Fury's golf swing, doesn't understand what golf is about. I mean, a golf swing doesn't have to be pretty, to um, be great, not 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 by any means. Um, it, it's just it's as I said earlier. I mean, John's John's thing would be golf is what the ball does. And you know, when I was with Mac O'Grady one time, he said that uh, I thought this was a great quote and would be true at Augusta this week. But Mac said that Seve had said to him one time, um, "If you're on a major championship golf course." and you haven't got control of the ball, and you know you haven't got control of the ball, it's a very scary place to be. And and you either know you've got control of the ball, or you know you haven't. And if you haven't got control of the ball, you're going to be very, very nervous playing a difficult golf course. It's unavoidable. Hey, everyone. It's Jason at Sub70 Golf. And since it is Masters Week, we thought at Sub70 here that we should probably do a uh, giveaway on something really cool and exciting so we thought our 699 irons would be perfect uh, the winner will have uh, their information kind of given to us we'll work with you and make sure when we hand build these here in sycamore illinois they are built exactly to that person's specifications so it's really really simple uh, follow us at golf sub 70 on twitter and if you retweet the contest that we are having at hashtag sub 70 masters that gets you in, and um, hope everyone has a really wonderful Masters week. It's a really exciting time of the year, and uh, for the winner, I hope you really, really enjoy our 699 irons that we uh, make and produce and hand-build here, and hope you play a little bit better golf with them. Thanks for listening. It's kind of a sidebar question, but you know, Britt, we've talked about Seve a little bit here. You know, you were around teaching for a long time. You knew those guys. What, what what happened with his golf swing that he played so well for so long, and then in his forties it became a struggle? Um, was it technical? Was he was it injury that caught up with him? What, what did you see? Um, my 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 opinion would be this. I mean, Seve was one of my heroes, most certainly. And my opinion would be this: He started having back trouble when he was about twenty three. And so I think by the time he was 40, I think his body just wouldn't let him make the swing uh, that, that he wanted to make. I can't, I can't imagine that Sebi didn't know how to swing a golf club. But, you know, if the back just gets so bad, you just can't make the move you want to make. Um, so, you know, some people would say he got the yips with the driver. Um, we, we will never know that for sure. He never lost his short game skills. But he certainly had trouble finding the fairway with his driver. But... I, I would lean towards that being a back injury, which he had from his early 20s. And it progressively got worse. And um, I, I, that, that, for me, would be the main reason. I mean, you could look at a swing on video and say perhaps he came down a bit steep or this or that, and, and people have done. But 
to my mind, I still think the injury was probably at the bottom of it all. And, and I think, the, you know, the other thing, Jace, that people have to realize in golf, um, most players, if they win four, five majors, even if they do win five majors, they win most of them in about a 10-year period. Mm-hmm. They don't, I mean, Nicholas is, Nicholas is an absurdity in, in the length of his career. Um, you know, you look at Faldo. Faldo won everything from 87 to 93, with one exception, 96. You look at Tom Watson. Tom Watson won everything from 75 to 83. Tom won all his stuff in eight years and never won another major after that. So I think people have to realize, you know, at the highest level with the nerves that it takes to hold those putts on lightning fast greens, you know, you, you don't, unless you're Jack Nicholas, you don't have 25 years to do it. And, you know, that, that's why I wonder if, if Tiger can do it again. You know, we'd all love to see him do it. I'd love to see him do it. But, I mean, let's not forget, the last time he won the Masters was... 2005, that's 14 years ago since you won the Masters. 14 years ago. And the last time he won a major was 2008. That's 11 years ago that he, he hasn't had a putt on the last green from seven or eight feet to get in a playoff like he did against Rocco or something like that for 11 years. Um, so how are his nerves going to be? I don't know. You know, one of the things Jacobs always said to me was he thought holding out under pressure, which is so difficult, Holding out under pressure, you know, the seven-footer on the the slope that's like glass on whichever green it might be, the 13th, the 16th, whatever it is. John said he thought holding putts out was like being a, a heavyweight fighter. You've got just so many good fights in you, and once you've used them up, you've used them up. And that's been my experience as, as I watch these great players. They have a period of time where they have the nerve and the will to make it happen. And then... After a point in time, they just can't. I mean, Nick Faldo was mentally as strong as anybody could ever be for a period of time. And then he went wobbly with his putting. I mean, nobody could ever have imagined that Faldo would ever go wobbly with his putting. But 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 he, but he did. And so, I mean, it, it, it can happen to anybody. Um, so I think people just have an amount of time. I'd, I would love to see Tiger do it. I mean, he seems to be hitting the ball well. I'd love to see him do it this week. It would be incredible for golf. It would be, if Atlanta was the greatest comeback of all time last year, this would top that and some to win the Masters. Would be, it would be the greatest comeback in sports history, perhaps. Uh, certainly in golf. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I agree. Like, if he can do it after everything he's been through on personal sides, you know, injuries, the whole nine yards, I think it'd be the greatest the greatest, one of the greatest sports stories of all time, if you can do it. But you're correct in the sense of the stats don't bode well for guys 20 years on tour winning majors at that point in time, right? It's, it's rare. I'm trying to think of how many guys have won, you know, in their mid forties, a major championship. It's like you said, there's I always think of like the, you know, on a smaller level, David Duvall, you know, what was that? 13, 14 wins in like a three year period. And then, Yeah. A little bit of an injury and just not the same, and that run is over. It was great while it lasted, but you're right. These guys don't have, for the most part, 15, 20 years of greatness. They can still be really good 20 years in their career, but knocking off majors one after another and consistently making those putts, it's, uh, it's you know, I'm just thinking about what you're saying, and you're kind of, I mean, I don't have a counter argument for it in the sense that maybe that's what Seve, <laughs> Seve put his body through it, and you know, like I said, the injuries start catching up, and 
20 years of doing it catches up, and next thing you know, you're not the same player you were when you were 28 years old. Yeah, no, no, I don't think so. I mean, it's, you know, one of my favorite movies is, is, is Sevy the movie. It obviously has that incredibly sad ending. I mean, for any of your listeners, if you haven't watched the movie on Sevy, it, it's, it's, for the most part, it's magical, other than the end, which is, which isn't magic, it's tragic. But, but in there, there's a, there's a lovely part in there, a very spiritual part, I believe, where Sevy is actually, standing on the 18th green at the old course at St. Andrews, where, of course, he'd hold that putt to win the Open Championship in 1984. And obviously, it was filmed after this. But Sebi said, you just have to realize in life, everything that begins eventually ends. And Sebi had a great sense of destino with his whole life. Destino is, is Spanish for fate. And, and, and he felt he was destined to be great. But he probably, you know, from that little piece in that movie, he probably also had a, a you know, a, a sort of a philosophical understanding that everything that begins eventually ends, and that is, that 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 is the circle of life, and uh, for, for all, it's the circle of sport and it's the circle of life, and I think whatever we have in our sport or whatever it is in our lives, we should we should embrace it while it's good because it won't last forever, and then, you know, and you know. Not every day is a great day, but make the best of every day you can and um, enjoy what we can because that's that's all we have, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. And um, no, it's it's interesting. You got to spend time with these with these greats and to kind of you know talk about it and see what you saw. It just I find it utterly fascinating. Um, back to back to the golf swing. So my other question I had when I was thinking about this is: Has your teaching had to have changed? based on how the equipment has changed, say, over the last 20 years, as the golf ball doesn't spin as much as you can hit it harder, have you had to adjust the way you kind of think about um, teaching or a good young player comes to you of how you're going to tackle that situation? I, you know, I don't think so. I hear that. But I, I don't feel like it's changed. I, I think you might. I think you might have to work a bit harder to draw it and fade it. You know, the, the swing that used to probably hit a soft draw might not hit a um, a soft draw now, may, maybe, but but I think it's been so gradual. We've all we've all forgotten what it's like to play with persimmon woods and ballata golf balls. And you know, I have in in our studio down at the club at Ibis where I teach, we have a couple of old persimmon woods. And um, um, you know, you look at them and you think, oh my God, had we ever hit with those? Although I will tell you this, and this is interesting. So just before Christmas in December, I was doing some filming with Rory McIlroy down at down at Ibis, and he came into the studio at the back there, and he happened to see this old Mizuno driver, Mizuno persimmon driver, probably 1985. He said, oh, that looks fantastic. It had got the crappiest old slippy old grip on you've ever seen, uh, a shaft where the it was, it was beginning to go a little bit rusty. And he said, you know, when we finish filming, I've got to hit it. I've got to hit it. And sure enough, when we finished filming for this, he remembered that he wanted to hit it. So he's got a persimmon driver, um, a rotten old grip, a shaft that was probably built for a 55-year-old man. And we just happened to have Trackman running. And Rory steps up and his first shot with this persimmon driver with his tailor-made golf balls, his first shot was 
296 yards carry, 316 yards total. Really? So when this, yeah, when they say clubs didn't hit as far, I think I think that's disputable. I, I think what has changed for the distance the ball, the distance it goes, is the ball. The yes. ball's the biggest thing that's changed more than the equipment, um, and it just goes a lot farther. But I certainly haven't changed my uh, view on how I teach because the ball doesn't spin as much. I wouldn't say that. Over the years of teaching, what's one of the one or two most difficult things to have an average golfer turn into a really good golfer? What's some of that? The the, the it sounds like it should be simple, but it's hard to, for this. 15 or 16 handicap to get down to a nine. What is that biggest hurdle you've seen over the years with your teaching experience? Well, I mean, you've got, you've got the mechanical aspects of how we hit a golf ball. I think getting, getting, you know, Mr. 15 handicap to, to pinch the inch of ground just after the ball with a six iron, a seven iron, an eight iron to, to take a small divot, to have the hands ahead of the ball at impact, to have the weight forwards at impact. That That is a challenge for most 15 handicappers, and we, we have to work as teachers. We have to work really hard to make that happen. Um, I think on the, um, on the side of actually playing the game, getting people to make realistic choices or sensible choices on the golf course is... It's also a challenge. Now, Bob Tosky is a great Bob Tosky who uh, was equally as big a mentor to me as John Jacobs. Bob would always say, you know what? If people ran their businesses the way they try and play golf, they would all be bankrupt because they make appalling decisions for the most part about playing out of the trees or what club to take. And um, a, a general rule is this. Whatever shot you're facing, if you don't think you can pull it off with ease 70% of the time, you probably readjust the shot you're about to hit. That's actually an Annika Sorenstam rule, 70% rule for Annika. If you don't think you can pull the shot off, whether it's carrying it over the water, whether it's hitting it over the bunker and stopping it, um, whatever it might be, drive, hitting a long drive, hooking it round the corner... If you don't think you would, you would bet every penny you've got in your bank balance that you could pull it off with ease 70% of the time, you probably shouldn't be trying it. You should, you should hit a shot that you can pull off about 70% of the time. And if you do that, you'll very likely score lower. If I, I've thought, if I could caddy for most club golfers, any club golfer really around, around America or Great Britain and Ireland or wherever for that matter, and, and they they would be diligent and and, and do um, what what the caddy asked them to do, what I asked them to do. Uh, you you could easily knock four or five shots off almost any golfer's score by just making better decisions. I, I totally agree with that. I've always said if you could keep the ball in front of you, and I'm lucky enough I'm a low handicap player, and but you watch some of these guys, and you if you could just you know get it in front of the green. And ship it up so at worst you're going to make a bogey. You know they wouldn't be that far off from shooting in the high 70s or 80s just by kind of keeping it in front of them. You know eight or nine over. Oh, no, they, they, they they wouldn't at all. I mean, look, you, you talked about John Jacobs. I talked about uh, Butch Harmon. I talked about Jim Hardy. I, said, I don't know if I mentioned Hank Haney. I mean, Hank Haney is a great uh, John Jacobs fan. Perhaps I did. Um, but but I think Hank's view on how to play good golf, and he worked on this with Tiger as he would work on it with, uh, you know, 29 handicap Dr. Smith or Mrs. Smith. 
Um, if you want to score better, do the following three things. One, off the tee, no penalty shots. You know, don't have a, don't have a tree in the way in your backswing. Just, you know, his definition of a good tee shot is you can find it and you can make a swing at it. I agree. So one, no penalty shots off the tees. Two, no two chips. If you've got a chip shot, get it on the green. And three, no three putts. If you can play without penalty shots off the tee, if you can play without any two chips, and you can play without any three putts, it's amazing how well you can score. Mm-hmm. You, you don't have to hit your five iron like Rory McIlroy to shoot 82. You really don't. No, and it kind of goes with that if you ever go and play you know, a round of golf with two or three clubs, right? And, and, and that's how you have to kind of play to, to shoot a 75 or a 76 with three golf clubs and just sort of keeping it in front of you. It's not sexy, but it shows if you can just, you know, scrounge out some pars and at worst make a bogey, it's, it's, uh, it's, you can really show of how important it is just to kind of keep the ball in front of you. And it's an interesting way of kind of looking at the game. Golf is, um, golf is best played when you play it like chess and you're thinking one or two moves ahead and and you're strategic about it. And, And it's, it's what Carl Morris calls, you know, you, you want to play scoring golf, not exhibition golf. Exhibition golf is someone talks in the locker room about the drive they hit on the 16th and how far it went and neglect to tell you that they lost four balls during the round of golf. But scoring golf is you put a number on your scorecard at the end of the day and, you know, you couldn't have tried any harder and hopefully you didn't make too many silly decisions. Yes, it's it, like you said, it's amazing if somebody would actually break it down and look at their stats and say, how do I get better? The evidence is in front of you of how to do it, right? Because most of us can't do what the guys on the PGA Tour can do. We can't hit it 320 yards, but you can make better, for lack of a better word, chess moves to get the most out of your game. I, just, it's, it, I always watch it sometimes, and I'm just amazed of how do they not see that or maybe set their bag up a little bit different to make – you know, a few more hybrids or some higher lofted fairway woods to kind of make that easier versus, well, you know, the better players have their bags set up with X, so I need to do that. Stuff like that I kind of watch from afar, and it always I'm always interested of, like, how do they not see that angle? But golf is hard for a lot of people. It really is. Well, I'm not sure, I'm not sure everybody plays golf to score low. I mean, some people get great pleasure out of just hitting one or two really good shots in a round. I mean, it doesn't float my boat, but but some people do, and that's, that's absolutely fine. I think, you know, we have to remember that uh, we're not tour professionals. They are they are the 1% of the 1%. They're the best in the world that we watch on Sunday afternoons. I mean, the the people we'll be watching this Sunday afternoon in Augusta are the cream of the cream of the cream. They're, they are the most elite. Um, so if anybody's watching them... Um, and thinking on Monday, I'm going to go and hit it like Justin Thomas. Like they're going to have a very rude awakening on Monday because they're, <laughs> they're not going to hit it like Justin Thomas. Uh, but, uh, you know, one thing I do want to say for any of the listeners, I think uh, as I have gotten older, I think it is really important that, that as you as you age and you still have the hopefully good health to play this game, that, that you play an, uh, an appropriate length of golf course. And yes. You know, people who are 60 years of age and say, I'm still going to be playing at 7,300 yards. Well, I've got some news for you. You're probably going to be miserable. Yes. You know, Jack Jack Nicklaus will not play at more than 6,300 yards now. He won't. And and he's quite, I can tell you this, I know, 
he's quite content if he breaks 18 and if he shoots his age. And, um, you know, some people say that wouldn't be good enough for me. It's like, well, it's good enough for Jack Nicholas. Right, right. Uh, and I think th- those, that <clears throat> those that do play off the appropriate length tees enjoy the game more. Um, so I think I think that's important. And as you said, the hybrids. I think using the hybrids, using the five hybrid, a six hybrid. I think that's important as we as we lose clubhead speed. Uh, you know, senior golfers. Uh, for me, as I get older, I used to be able to launch a one iron in the air. That was no problem. Can't now. I used to be able to launch my three wood off a tight lie on a you know a tight downhill lie. I can't now. I can't get my three wood in the air off the fairway. I cannot the tee because you need enough speed to do it. So when people say, "Why can't I hit my three wood far enough off the fairway?" It's like, well, then I have to tell you this, but you probably don't have enough speed. I hit my five wood off the fairway farther than I hit my three wood off the fairway now. I didn't used to, but I do now. So you have to know this stuff, and you know, as you get older, probably your seven wood's going to go farther than your five wood, and that's just being, to me, that's just being sensible and understanding the aging process, which. Uh, I don't think anybody's figured out how to beat that one yet. Well, speaking of uh, really good players, great players, your wife, Lisa, had one heck of a career on the European Ladies Tour, the LPGA Tour, two Solheim Cups, I believe nine wins. And what kind of resource, what have you gained from her, maybe even like from the mental side of golf, where she played at such a high level for so long that you can kind of bring that to your teaching as well, where you can... You know, she's been in those situations. She's played under high-pressure golf. She's won at high levels and, and immense pressure. That has to be one heck of a resource that you could bring to your students of just being able to to, you know, to ask your wife these kind of questions of how she may have approached a situation or something to that extent. Well, it was, you know, it was our journey. It was a great journey. Um, you know, I gave Lisa her first lesson ever when she started. I was just a young assistant pro in England, and... Uh, you know, she won nine times around the world, four times on the European tour, and uh, had a top five in every major. She finished second in one major, um, and I think she finished third in another major. Uh, I mean, she was a great player, but it certainly was not every day was a sunny day. I mean, we had some uh, we had some thunderstorms in her career, that's for sure. So what what did I learn? Uh, I learned that nobody is consistent, and you know, people say I'd like to be consistent. Nobody's consistent. Everybody has a range of, of, of scores. I mean, you know, look, look at the, look at Jordan Spieth this last weekend. Forty-two, the first nine, thirty-one, the second nine. I think it was. Yes. So crazy. Everybody is inconsistent. I think that um, I, I learned that resilience is incredibly important. I learned that desire is incredibly important. I mean, she she started well in her career. She had a you know, a couple of couple of dips in the career, and then she finished really well in her career. And uh, you know, she played all over the world. She won the Asian Order of Merit. I mean, she she was a great player. But she, you know, what, what did I learn? How hard it is. Um, it's not all glamour by any means. Um, how ready you have to be to take a few knockout punches on the chin that you didn't see coming. Um, you know, one of the phrases I teach all my juniors. Every golfer I teach, I teach this phrase. Just because the river is quiet, it doesn't mean the crocodiles have left. It's an old Malaysian phrase. Just because everything seems fine, it doesn't mean there isn't something nasty just around the corner. And that's not being negative. I don't buy this stuff about just being positive. I really don't. I think you have to be prepared for anything and everything in in golf. Um, 
Golf is a very, very hard game to play at the highest level over a long period of time. And I don't, I don't think you just have one swing. I think you have many swings in your lifetime and you have, you have swing thoughts that work for a while and then they don't. I, I, I actually, I mean, we're on a podcast now. Um, I listened to a podcast the other day with Jordan Spieth and it was, it was fascinating saying how, you know, it, it's, it's been a difficult last 12 months for him. I mean, uh, he, uh, he said that the thoughts he had in 2014, 2015, when the game was easy for him, he hasn't forgotten what those thoughts are. He remembers them. He goes back to them. Minor problem. They just don't work anymore. And so it, it, it's ever it's ever changing. Um, I, I actually tweeted the other day, and it got quite some traction actually. That I, I think I think there is a Chinese proverb that says something like. You can't put your foot in the same river twice as a river is ever moving. And golf is the same. You you, you can't go back. It, it's ever changing. It's it's ever fluid. It's 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 never constant and ever changing. So you're always adjusting your golf swing. And sometimes it's really hard to find it. Even when you know what you should be fixing, it's very hard to find it. Um, so so what did I learn? You have to be resilient. You have to, you have to be a bulldog. And just just keep going. Well, yeah, I mean that's like I said. You you, you know, it's, I I listened to that same podcast with Jordan Speed. It was on No Laying Up. I thought it was absolutely great. On even in his, you know, was he twenty five years old? He's already talking about how he had three different major swing thoughts, all of which worked, and he's still sort of searching this year. And it's it just shows even you know for the somebody with that much talent and that much success, golf can still be difficult. And, golf is always, golf is always yeah. difficult. <laughs> yeah. Well, he made it look pretty easy for a long period of time for, you know, that run he was on from not having a card to winning at the John Deere to three major championships. I mean, that was one hell of a run he was on. But like you said, it doesn't last forever. But he's so, he's so tough, I think he will come out of the other side of this. I think he has so much talent, and he's so good. And I think mentally he's really good, just kind of from watching from afar. I, I would be surprised so, so, if he doesn't so let, have more them. Let, let, let me comment on that. I, I hope he does. But when people say to me, this is my experience, Jason, when people say to me, would Jordan Spieth come back? Or would, you know, people ask, would David Duval come back? Or, or will Tiger come back? I mean, my answer is, we're going to have to wait and see, aren't we? I hope he does. I certainly hope he does. But I don't think anybody can guarantee that he will. And nobody can guarantee that he won't. I mean, he is immensely talented, but no one knows for sure. I mean, his... You know, his major tally might be right where it is now. We'll see. Well, my last segment I have is on just quick hitters on on your thoughts on these guys' golf swings. So as a teacher, just real quick, sort of why do you think these golf swings will work and what's sort of your view of them, and then we'll get you out of Dodge here. So okay. I'm going to throw some different ones at you. So okay. my first one, Phil Mickelson. Yeah, immensely talented. I, I met I met Phil before he turned pro. Um, actually, just before he won that tournament in Tucson as an amateur. And I um, I remember talking to Rick Smith when Rick Smith was working with Phil. And Rick said, and probably is right, Phil might have the best hands the game has ever seen. Because if you look at Phil's swing on video, what happens just before and just after impact you would not expect him to be as good as he is. But if you actually watch him hit balls, it is, when he's on, it's, it's phenomenal to watch him hit golf balls when he's on. Um, so I would say Phil Mickelson, if 
fantastic hand-eye coordination, fantastic hands, and great short Tiger Woods golf swing today post back fusion surgery. What's your sort of view of it? Um, yeah, I mean, where where I practice, I mean, I, I sometimes practice at the medalist, so I get to see Tiger hit some balls from time to time. And I think he looks good. I mean, he hits the ball incredibly well on the range. I mean, he, he doesn't stay down quite as long as he used to with his, uh, with his uh, fusion of the spine. But, I mean, you watch the ball fizzing through the air, and it's uh, it's amazing. I mean, I wouldn't tell you he hits similar shots. They look like they go through the same vapor trail in the sky. They're, they're so impressive. So... Uh, there's no there's no lack of speed there. Um, I think his golf swing looks extremely good. I I don't think it's that different than it was. Um, I mean, it's not quite the same as it was in 2000, but he's 20 years on. I mean, he's gone from 23 to 43. Um, so I think uh, I think his golf swing looks good. I think his chipping looks a lot better. I was I had doubts about his chipping a couple of years ago, but I think it looks good and. I think I think the question mark at the moment would be probably his putting. It's not his ball striking. He he seems to have dialed back a little bit off the tee, and his driving seems more accurate. Um, so I think I think if he can putt well, he can still be a force. You know, the the right week, the right time, the right tournament, and uh, he, he could still be a force. But yeah, he still looks majestic when he's hitting it. It really does. Bryson DeChambeau. Uh most unusual. What would I say? Uh, in, intriguing, intriguing individual. Um, I, I have no idea where he will end up. Uh, what he has achieved to this point is fantastic. Uh, he is clearly his own man. He beats to his own drum. And you have to applaud him for that. I think this idea of the single length irons and the thick grips and the single length plane, Everybody thought he would be taken away and locked up with the criminally insane. They thought he was mad, but uh, he has proved the whole world wrong. Uh, I think, obviously, in in addition to his curiosity about the physics of golf and the physics of of all of it, you know, putting with the pin in, all those sorts of things, what he obviously has is a ferocious competitor's spirit. That when he has a, he's like a shark. When he smells blood, he can go for the kill, and uh, he obviously has the killer instinct in that regard. So, yeah, I, I think he, I think he's great for the game. I think he's a breath of fresh air. I think he's great. I, I watched him up close the year he won at the John Deere a couple of years back on that Friday round, and he shot like eight or nine under. It made it look so easy. I was surprised how long he was with a move where it doesn't look like there's much, you know, lag or hinge. I mean, he's a big guy and he's strong, but I was surprised. He had like four different gears where it's like, oh, you want me to hit this 330 with a draw? Okay. And then he had a fairway finder sort of gear. I, I was impressed watching him up close of how good the ball striking really was. He's very impressive, young man. Very impressive. Bernhard Langer. Oh, Peter Pan. Um, amazing. Absolutely amazing. I, I think I mentioned earlier, my first tournament of the European Tour was his first tournament on the European Tour, the 1976 uh, Portuguese Open. And it is beyond, it is mind-boggling to me that he is still playing tournaments. I I think he has a very good chance to perhaps pass Hale Irwin's uh, victory tally on, 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 on that tour, the Champions Tour. Um, I think he's you know, still got a bit of work to do, but he, he is amazing. He's kept himself in great shape. His golf swing is better now. At, I think he's 61 now. 
His golf ring is better at 61 than it was at 21. And he's, uh, he's like a fine bottle of wine. He just, I mean, mechanically, his golf swing has gotten better every year. His grip has gotten better. His golf swing has gotten better. And, and the fact, his, um, his inner strength that he has battled the demons on the greens and come back from that at least three times. And, and then, you know, the, 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 the ban with the long putter, um, it is amazing to me. I, I will say this. I know Bernhard a little bit. And, and the very fact that, that when he continued to putt with a long putter and some people accused him of actually putting his thumb against the chest, if you knew Bernhard, you would know that's not possible. If he said he didn't anchor it, uh, he didn't anchor it. I, that, that I know for sure because he's a man of such faith. He would not lie. Uh, so he, he's, he's amazing. His, uh, his resolve is incredible. Then I have to ask you about my favorite golf swing of all time, uh, Ben Hogan. So I, I'm, I'm assuming uh, the views of yours will be very praiseworthy, but I, I just love I love that golf swing. So love to have your views on well, I, what made I, Mr. Hogan I, so good. I love the golf swing. I never got to saw Hogan hit golf balls, unfortunately. I mean, I've studied the video. I've talked to people who knew him pretty well. Um, I talked to Ken Bowden a lot about it. When Ken was uh, in charge of Golf Digest, he went down to Fort Worth, Texas, and spent four days with Hogan. He tried to sign him with Golf Digest. And Hogan Hogan told him what he thought the secret was, and Ken Bowden told me what the secret was. And the secret was, according to Ken Bowden, the secret was hitting with the right side of your chest in the hitting area. And Ken's when, Ken said, why didn't you put that in the five lessons? And, and Ken told me that the, the great Ben Hogan said, well, we thought it would be too difficult for people to um, to deal with, so we didn't put it in. But that's Ken Bowden, to me, rest his soul. He said that was what Hogan told him the secret was. But I have great, great Ben Hogan stories from the pro at Shady Oaks. I think it's Mark Wright, Mike Wright, the pro at Shady Oaks. Forgive me for not knowing that. Um, and then from Bob Toskey, who knew him very well. I mean, Bob taught me so much about how and how Hogan worked the golf ball and how he hit the golf ball and and so many of his thoughts and Bob's observations on Hogan. And um, I think from all accounts, and that's all I've got, but from all accounts, he was probably the greatest ball striker we've ever seen. I did, I, I did see Tiger do a very small clinic that I was at a few years ago and Tiger said, there's only three people who've owned the golf swing and the ball flight. One was Ben Hogan, two was Lee Trevino, and three was Mo Norman. And, you know, Tiger would like to be the fourth. But uh, So I think the consensus of opinion is that Hogan was probably the best ball striker of all time. Doesn't make him the best player of all time. Some would say Jack's the best player of all time because of his major tally. Some would say Sam Snead's the best player of all time because of his all-time wins. Some would say Gary Player's the best player of all time because of his I think if you ask Gary it's 160 something wins around the globe which is quite incredible so who's the best player of all time I don't know but I think I think most people would agree Ben Hogan was the best ball striker of all time so I love watching his golf swing I'm with you on that that. it is such a beautiful move it's timeless and it's you know that that golf swing with modern equipment would hold up just fine in today's uh, oh, today's arena. It's so good. I'm absolutely sure it was the year he had in 1953, where he won the three majors he played in. Um, that swing would work just as well in 2019 as Augusta National if he was here. 
Exactly. Well, speaking of which, I'll uh, one last one here. Who is your pick for this week if you had to go with uh, with one <laughs> green jacket? Well, I've got a pick. I've got a want. I've got a favorite. He's Irish, and his first name is Rory, and his last name is McElroy. Go, Rose! We want Rose be- to win. I would be happy. He seems like he'd be. I think that would be a very popular win. Is is uh, yeah. It would be great for the game of golf to see him win the Grand Slam. Yes, it would. Martin, thank you so much. I've really looked forward to this conversation, and I've really enjoyed the time. And I know you're busy, so thank you so much for taking the time to do this with us today. I really, really appreciate it. My pleasure, Jace. Take care. Have a great day. Thank you very much. Bye now.